This is episode number 413 with director and co-founder at Datapop Alliance, Emmanuel Letouze. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super excited to have you back here on the show. Today, we've got a special guest calling in from New York, Emmanuel Letouze, who is a man of an extreme number and variety of different backgrounds and skills. Uh, so Emmanuel is the director and co-founder of the Data Pop Alliance, an organization, uh, an NGO, so a non-for-profit organization where they uh, create or use data and AI to help solve global challenges. And on top of that, he's also a political cartoonist, so something he's been doing for the past 25 years. So a huge combination of backgrounds, a very interesting worldview. And today we're going to discover some very cool topics in the space of uh, geoeconomics. So what exactly did we talk about? Well, today you'll hear about uh, behaving ethically in all aspects of your life and why uh, that uh, is important in separating professional and personal, some philosophical ideas there, uh, data and economic politics in the world, uh, changing the world with data, better data versus uh, better decisions, and what the difference is between using data as a lens for measuring and as a lever for impacting change. You'll find out about the 17 SDGs or Sustainable Development Goals and what where they came about from, what they mean in terms of uh, geoeconomic development of countries. I found that part extremely fascinating. Then we also spoke about big data as a mindset, climate change, gen gender-based violence, COVID, and we finished off with data and disaster resilience. So some very important topics, uh, global topics, and uh, coming from a person who has worked in the space for quite some time and has uh, a lot of interesting perspectives. So I think let's get started. And without further ado, I bring to you Emmanuel Letouze, co-founder and director at Datapop Alliance. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super excited to have you back here on the show. Today, we've got a special guest calling in from New York, Emmanuel uh, Letouze. Letouze, right? Yes, Great. welcome, yes. Emmanuel. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Excited to have you. Uh, lots to talk about. Um, and uh, I, I was very cool. It was very cool what we were talking about just now uh, about uh, personal professional. And uh, you're now father of uh, three girls, right? So let's maybe continue that discussion. How has that changed your life? How has that changed your perspective? Um. I mean, you know, as, as all parents, it changes your your you know day to day routine. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, you're you know quite tired, uh, but then there are of course uh, yeah like deeper changes. It changes uh, your you know your priorities. Uh, you know what you know what what matters. Uh, also, your perspectives. I think on uh, on on life, um, you tend to be more less 
less yeah, self-centered, less egoistic to think maybe like longer term because you're thinking about you know the kind of world that you're gonna you're gonna live in. Um, and I would say especially having had um, so like initially two twin daughters ten years ago and now uh, like an eight month old. Um, so girls, uh, I think it's also made me more aware um, of uh, you know gender inequalities and uh, the kind of yeah the, the kind of challenges. Uh, that they might face, um, uh-huh. and and wanting to you know, to to yeah, to work more uh, on uh, on gender and and for instance we have projects with DataPop about gender based violence uh, which mm-hmm. have been promoted quite a bit and so uh, I mean there's there's no counterfactual so yeah. I don't know if I would have done that yeah. uh, or you know, to that extent uh, if I had not had uh, daughters but I mean the, yeah the fact that is I, I think it I think it had a, an influence. It's very interesting how that uh, ties in with your, uh, I think, general kind of uh, sentiment in life that uh, you're a very uh, aware person. And for example, I I noticed that in one of your presentations, I think you flew from Europe to the US. And one of the first slides was like, well, I spent two tons of carbon emissions getting here. Let's see what we can actually do of value. And that's a really cool way of seeing things. Um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, maybe, you know, as a, as, as I think there's a thread, uh, in my, in my life, uh, which is that I don't see the, uh, like a very strong or, or very much of a, of a distinction between, uh, between the personal and the, and the professional. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, um, I, when people say, you know, you have to, to act like, you know, professionally, I don't really know what that means. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I think I think I, I prefer when people say you have to behave like ethically in all mm-hmm. aspects uh, of your of your of your life. And so um, yeah, so when I'm traveling to a conference or was uh, before mm-hmm. before the pandemic, um, yeah, it, it's it's you have to take into into account all the all the consequences of your of your mm-hmm. actions. Uh, and to be frank, I had many <laughs> instances where I thought, is it really worth it? Like, mm-hmm. am I I'm, I'm you know, burning two tons uh, yeah. of, of, of CO2, uh, and so um, yeah, is it is it is it yeah is it is it worth it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting how sometimes we we do take actions we think are for good, but actually um, tend to create more harm, uh, and the other way around. It reminds me of a story when in Iceland there was a volcanic eruption. I think it was like maybe 2010. I'm not sure exactly about the year, but because of that volcanic eruptions, all planes were grounded for you know several weeks in Europe, and in essence, that meant that the amount of carbon the planes would have emitted would have been more than the volcano. So it was a carbon neutral volcano. I saw some journalists presenting on that. So it's uh, yeah, no, yeah. I, rem- I actually remember that, like the 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 cloud that was over uh-huh. like a big part of Europe. Yeah. Um, yeah, as a, as a result of that, yes, and I think I think um, I mean, especially right, you know, especially now with COVID and what what it has revealed. Uh, I mm-hmm. think about the you know the state of the world and the structural you know fault lines and the the structural systemic inequalities uh, like racism, sexism, but this sort of like also like pandemic of 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 poverty and inequality. And um, I think it's really a time where we have to. 
all reassess our you know, ways of life. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's a good opportunity to do that and just you know, pause for a little bit, like you know, think about yeah, what matters, uh, the mm-hmm. kind of world and society and societies that we want also like our children uh, yeah. you know, to, to sort of like, uh, live in. And so f- not flying around the globe is one of yeah. those like, small changes, but I think there are also like, deeper changes that we have to make. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Is that is that why you started Data Pop Alliance? Uh, so when you say when you say like why you mean uh, sort of like you know to what was the motivation? Because it's a it's an NGO, yeah. right? So it's a yes. not for profit organization, non governmental. Um, what why and it's it looks like a big undertaking. And I I would love for you to tell us more about it just now. But to start off with, like what motivated you to start this? Uh, organization yeah i mean of course i mean i could you know i i could talk for hours about you know the the you know the nuances and the, the you know all the different threads um but we don't have that time um, and and probably few people have that interest so i mean in a nutshell uh, i think there were like short term um like determinants or drivers and there were like deeper like determinants and, and drivers and, and so the short-term ones were that, so in, um, in 2011, uh, like, you know, 2010, 2011, so these were the very early years of what's, you know, become or become to be called a data revolution, of course, mm-hmm. which we are now. And, you know, you, you know the, you, your podcast is uh, like, you know, definitely one of the, you know, one of, one of the, you know, both like, you know, signals and uh, yeah, example uh, of what's happened over the past decade. Uh, and so I was working, um, I had worked for the UN before and as an economist, which is more of my, my background. And then I was working at UN Global Pulse, uh, mm-hmm. where uh, I wrote a, a, a white paper on so-called uh, big data for development. And so I had already like entered that space, uh, mm-hmm. so to speak, and started thinking about how big data, data science could basically you know, help improve, change the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know we may, might get to the deeper root causes or drivers of you know, why I wanted to do that. Uh, but at any rate, I felt um, yeah, I felt a bit frustrated at times uh, by the UN bureaucracy, uh, the fact that it's very hard to talk about politics and political mm-hmm. economy at the UN because you have to deal with member states, mm-hmm. um, and so you have to walk a fine line. And so I wanted to have. Um, it was clear to me that. I thought data was going to be uh, this like you know defining factor or feature of at least the next couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Um, that it was going to be very powerful. That it was going to be very disruptive. And I wanted to do something about and with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, I wondered, okay, what can I do? Um, I'm pretty independent um, in terms of you know personality. Um, I don't like authority very much uh or let's say i have an authority issue sometimes and mm-hmm. so i thought okay i have to create something of and on my own uh mm-hmm. i didn't want it to be for profit i didn't want to create a like a startup and so yeah i decided to create um an academic minded ngo so mm-hmm. with uh like colleagues partners people in my network at uh at MIT and, and Harvard and the Overseas Development Institute. 
And we want, I wanted to do different things. I wanted to do trainings. I wanted to do policy uh, advocacy, uh, mm-hmm. policy advice, uh, research, uh, mm-hmm. of course. And so that was in 2013. And so that mm-hmm. was sort of like the, yeah, that was the, the, the how it really began with, um, yeah, with just those, uh, those ingredients. And just to end on that, like these, the, the very beginning of Data Pop Alliance, it actually started, or I had the idea after a discussion with uh, Kenneth Cuquier, uh, the mm-hmm. data editor of The Economist, mm-hmm. uh, at a conference in, uh, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And after the conference, we talked, we went to a bar and we had a pretty long discussion. And he asked me, okay, like, what do you want to do like, you know, in life? Uh, and I told him a little bit about this idea. And he just said, just, you know, go for it. And mm-hmm. like, for me, this was really so, like the, the, the sparkle. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's really cool. And, and a bold move as well, like moving from uh, your um, field of economics to data, which uh, you clearly saw potential in, but uh, quite different. And you managed to get backing by quite a few large uh, universities like Harvard and MIT. Tell us that story. How did you get them on board? Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's always been different threads, I would say, uh, like yeah. in, in, my, in my life. Um, yeah, I tend to think and act a lot with uh, yeah along along lines or threads and thinking in terms you know so like you know systems terms and network yeah. terms and so um, so I mean first it wasn't that much of a of a change because I, uh, my my background is in as you mentioned is in um, is in ec- development economics and and demography in particular so I have a like a master's in in, in economics um, or, well to another master's in development economics and a PhD in demography. So those are like quite quantitative fields to start with. So I was always interested in, in, in statistics and in data and numbers. Um, and, and actually my first job, which we might you know, get to is, was uh, working on official statistics for the French government in, uh, in Hanoi, in Vietnam. So with the, the National Statistical, oh, okay. Statistical Office of Vietnam. So there was always a bit of a thread. And we started working, for instance, on data mining uh-huh. in Vietnam in 2002, uh-huh. uh, which I had never heard of. Uh-huh. Uh, wow. But then, and, and so over the years, I built uh, a network of, of, um, of people. I mean, I just met people while being at the UN, uh, while then uh, working at Global Pulse uh, in this like nascent field of computational social science and data science. And so, for example, uh, I met, or in particular, I met with um, so, uh, Professor Alex Pentland um, at MIT, um, who's one of the, let's say, you know, godfathers of uh, the space of the, of the field of computational social science. Um, then I also met with people like Patrick Vink mm-hmm. uh, at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. Um, I had also been working with people at ODI in the UK uh, on, on development economics. So when when I decided to to create Data Pop Alliance, I thought, okay, I need partners. Uh, I need uh, you know people who can also uh, help me vouch uh, for me. And so I mean, just one one you know, quick last example. Actually, one day I wrote an email to Sandy Pentland at MIT, and I said, this is what I would like to do. I had met him maybe two. You know, two or three times, mm-hmm. um, but he's you know, super busy and gets lots of requests, etc. So I just told him pretty you know, cold email. Can I mm-hmm. come up or actually down? No, sorry, mm-hmm. up from from New York uh, 
to Boston, to, to, to Cambridge to talk about this idea. And he said, sure. And so we met for five, 10 minutes mm-hmm. um, on, on the sixth floor of the MIT Media Lab. And I explained what I wanted to do. And I said, do you want to be involved, help? Mm-hmm. And he said, sure. <laughs> and I said, what does it mean? Well, you know, just you know, tell me uh, you know, what you need, et cetera. And so then he became the academic director. Uh, uh-huh. And so I don't know, maybe it was a bit of a bet him because for me he thought you know, I have nothing to lose and you know this guy seems you know pretty reasonable and uh but so that's that's uh yeah that's how it started yeah that's awesome taking some uh bit of risks and also reaching out to to contacts that's really that's a good good advice Are you subscribed to the Data Science Insider? Personally, I love the Data Science Insider. It is something that we created, so I'm biased, but I do get a lot of value out of it. Uh, Data Science Insider, if you don't know, is a free, absolutely free newsletter, which we send out into your inbox every Friday. Very easy to subscribe to. Go to superdatascience.com slash DSI. And what do we put uh, together there? Well, our team goes through the most important updates over the past week or maybe several weeks and finds the news related to data science and artificial intelligence. You can get swamped with all the news, even if you filter it down to just AI and data science. And that's why our team does this work for you. Our team goes through all this news and finds the top five, simply five articles that you will find interesting for your personal and professional growth. Uh, They are then summarized, put into one email, and at a click of a button, you can access them Look through the summaries. You don't even have to go and read the whole article. You can just read the summary and be up to speed with what's going on in the world. And if you're interested in what exactly is happening in detail, then you can click the link and read the original article itself. I do that almost every week myself. I go through the articles and sometimes I find something interesting. I dig into it. So if you'd like to get the updates of the week in your inbox, subscribe to the Data Science Insider absolutely free at superdatascience.com slash DSI. That's superdatascience.com slash DSI. And now let's get back to this amazing episode. Um, can you give us some examples of uh, projects or initiatives in the Data Pop Alliance so we get a better feel for what exactly it is that you do? Sure. So the overall uh, tagline is, uh, is, is changing the world with data. Um, and so I think that gives... Uh, yeah, that gives us a pretty good sense of the, the you know the vision and the mission. Uh, so it's pretty ambitious. Um, you know, it's it's a quite political uh, undertaking and endeavor. Some might say, yeah, it's a bit mm-hmm. vague. You know, changing the world with data, but I I I, don't know, I still like it, and I think it conveys uh, it's a bit you know yeah inspirational. And so concretely, mm-hmm. uh, so we are. Uh, so we are structured around like three main like work pillars, so which we call diagnose, uh, mobilize, and transform. So diagnose is research, mm-hmm. so empirical research. So for example, we do we, we're now we have a as I mentioned previously a pretty strong focus on uh, which of course is not exclusive, but there is focus on on gender based violence uh, in in Latin mm-hmm. America in particular. So we're starting. We, we've actually published some. Uh, some initial papers on um, on the correlates of gender-based violence in in, a, in Mexico City, and now we're working uh, to expand that in Bogota and Sao Paulo. And and uh, so this is funded by the German Cooperation 
agency, so, so, so GIZ. And, and to do that, we use uh, mobility data, uh, we use uh, official statistics, we, we use call data to uh, shelters that we've had access to. And so we try to combine different types of data sources, so so-called big data, mobility data, uh, but also official statistics and, and other kinds of, let's say, like administrative records. Um, so we've done also research on, um, on, on, on poverty. We've done research and research papers on inequality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and, and all of those projects tend to be very focused on the global south and actually anchored in the global south. So we have teams in about 10 countries now, or, or staff in about 10 countries. So it's, mm-hmm. it's usually very, it's very grounded. Um, mm-hmm. We also do strategic evaluations uh, on digital transformation, for example, and we, we've helped, um, yeah, we've helped the European Commission uh, do their evaluation of uh, digitalization programs in Sub-Saharan Africa. And currently we're working with WFP on, uh, on digitalization. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and they just got the Nobel Prize uh, for peace. And so we were pretty, mm. I mean, not, not proud because we don't have anything to do with it, but just, you know, happy <laughs> and, you know, excited yeah. to be working with them. So the second yeah. thing we've done or we do is, is mobilize. And so under mobilize, yeah. it's, uh, I think the best way to, to describe it is to think about, we want to build capacities and communities. And so we want to build what I, we want to build mm-hmm. data capacities and communities. Um, and I think a key, a key concept here is that of data literacy or, or literacy in the age of data. Uh, and so we want people to be more aware uh, of, uh, of yeah, the, the main tenets of the data revolution, what is done with their or our data, how it can be used, uh, what kind of skills they need, um, how they can be advocates. And so we've done trainings in about 12 countries with the, with the UN on the sustainable development goal. So that's one of the things we do. And the last thing we do is under the, the transform uh, pillar, we, uh, so we advise uh, some partners, clients, uh, bilateral agencies on their data strategy, on data sharing, mm-hmm. um, like agreements, protocols, systems. Uh, we have uh, also supported the, the Colombian government in designing the so Colombia's first uh, data strategy, like national data strategy, and wow. um, and we and in general, yeah, we try to um, develop also solutions. Uh, another project that we m- I might talk about is the uh, open algorithms or PAL project. So that's yeah, that's pretty much what we uh, what we what we've done, and. Just last mm-hmm. word in terms of, I think the key features or the defining features, elements of Datapop are that it's yeah, it's pretty academic, um, academically like grounded. Um, it's but also quite so it's very locally grounded as well. Uh, it's mostly in the global mm-hmm. south and with global south partners, um, and and there is also a bit of a of advocacy and a bit of activism uh, in our mm-hmm. in our DNA. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. What do you mean by global south? Yeah. So maybe it's a bit of, of a contentious or uh, term. I mean, so you, typically what what people mean is countries yeah. that are non non OECD countries. Oh, okay. Um, so 
Uh, and then, uh, but, but actually there are exceptions. So for example, Mexico uh, and Colombia are both uh, OECD countries. So it's the sort of like you know, the, the, the rich countries club uh, of sorts. There are about uh, less than, mm-hmm. than, fewer than 30 countries. Uh, and so it would mean that you have 170 plus who are global south. Um, but so, yeah, so there isn't a very strict uh, like definition. And some, some people have used like third world countries but i think it's i think it's a terrible um i think yeah i think it's it's a it's a terrible like concept or phrase uh that a lot of people mm-hmm. in, in in like my field of you know like development and um try to stay um away from but so yeah so it's latin america and the caribbean it's uh sub-saharan africa uh, it's the middle east and north africa region and it's uh, like most parts of, uh, gotcha. of Asia. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Non OECD. So, Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, right? That's um, uh, the OECD countries. Gotcha. Um, all right. Very, very interesting. And um, yeah, like uh, it's. Uh, it looks like. Is is it the case that you uh, chose to help? Uh, these countries because data can have a larger impact or is it because you saw like the need there that people need um you know better um i don't know like better solutions to to the global problems that they're facing in those regions what what was the main driver behind that choice uh i mean yeah yeah so so there were personal drivers and there are of, and there are also more uh more more rational uh like practical like drivers um i mean i would start with the like the the, the more like you know yeah like practical uh, concrete uh, drivers so yes clearly uh i i do think that there are larger uh, capacity capacity gaps and and uh and mm-hmm. and overall like a a larger or very large potential in 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 these regions for mm-hmm. using uh, more better data uh, to change uh, to, to design better public policies, but also more fundamentally to change to improve uh, power dynamics, power structures. These tend to be countries where you have um, a lot of power grab by uh, political and economic elites. Um, in part. Uh, uh, you know that comes from uh, colonization in some parts of the world that come from uh, like natural resources like oil or you know diamond or gold uh, so they, these also tend to be highly unequal uh, countries if you look at you know the gini uh, coefficients for example and so yeah i just thought that that, that data could have a, a, a big impact uh, there by improving let's say human systems mm-hmm. so that that's clearly one reason Another reason is that it's also where you have the bulk of the world's population, uh, and so if you want to uh, if you want to have a mean, an impact, I mean, you know, we're talking probably seven billion out of eight billion, um, and and also where you have the, the highest uh, rates of demographic growth, um, Africa's population, for example. Uh, so they are still in their demographic transition, so it's growing very fast. So there were uh, also yeah that consideration. And then they face uh, specific challenges uh, that I'm personally very interested in. So 
poverty, uh, yeah, high levels of inequality, the impact of, uh, of environmental degradation, uh, conflict, um, conflict and crime in different uh, regions, uh, migration. And, and then there are more so like increasingly geopolitical or political questions about data sovereignty. Uh, the fact that, for example, Sub-Saharan Africa um, is becoming sort of like a, a bit of a hotspot for um, for competition between um, between the U.S., China, uh, Europe, but also uh, African actors when it comes to yeah, connectivity, data centers, uh, etc. So I think it's, these are also like very very uh, interesting regions, and of course. Last but not least, like things around like gender equality, gender-based violence. So there's a lot uh, that interests me. And I would just say, you know, awesome. then we can talk m- more about it if you want. But on a personal level, uh, I spent a lot of time growing up in uh, traveling with my parents first and then uh, for work. Um, in yeah, I did part of my studies in, uh, in, in Senegal, for example. So I always had a, a sort of... A, the, the bug or the drive to actually work in these regions. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. It's, um, uh, it's important, uh, like if you have the opportunity to expose yourself to different cultures and, and see how the world is different and what other problems they're facing there. Um, I think this would be a good segue to your, uh, you and paper, uh, big data for development. I, I believe you wrote two papers for the United Nations. I only read the abstract of one, I think the 2019 paper, and um, where you talked about some very interesting concepts about how data is being used currently to uh, address some of the world's problems. But is it really being addressed, used to address the world's problems or is it used just to measure them? And um, we haven't spoken about this, but... Uh, you're a you do cartoons uh, and like for for explaining concepts and what some of those cartoons uh, you use to explain data and in this particular report there's a I think on page like uh, on one of the first pages there's a cartoon illustrating the whole situation let me just read out what it says this is page three and the somebody speaking at like a, a big assembly is saying the data revolution is here the good news is we can now uh, measure your poverty levels at amazing levels of geographic granularity uh, in real time. The bad news is we still can't do anything about it. So I found that very uh, interesting, and um, uh, and I found it also close to 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 my heart because for a lot of our courses uh, in what we teach, uh, we've uh, we use the World Bank data. There's a lot of uh, geodemographic indicators, poverty, mortality rate. I don't know, like. Um, uh, electricity consumption, GDP, GDP per capita, all these things. I've been, I'm used to working with them. And like the way you put this into your UN paper was interesting that, uh, yes, we can get better and better at measuring these things, but will that actually improve um, the the way of life of people and make changes? And you have a really cool quote here. Uh, you said, politics often trumps statistics in shaping policies. Right. You can have all the data in the world, but at the end of the day, it might come down to politics. So could you tell us, uh, in a nutshell, what are your thoughts on, um, are we using data and AI to just measure things? And it, does that imply automatically that things are going to change? 
or do we need to use them somehow differently in order to um, bring about this change? And if, if so, what are the ways that we can use data and AI more uh, to help the world and help uh, improve these ge uh, geoeconomic uh, indicators? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, likewise, you know, this is basically this is mm, I, I was going to say my life, but it's not my yeah. life. It's my, it's my work. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, as we've hinted or mentioned, I, I don't see a very strong uh, a distinction between between both. And I think yeah. actually often we we tend to to build like walls when when there should be uh, just uh, the, you know little fences that you can easily jump you know back and from to between the personal and the and the professional. So yes, I mean so the. the that's the big question for me. And it is this question of uh, whether and how, so under which conditions, measuring X actually helps affect that X. Uh -huh. um, and, uh, and, and it's, it's a fascinating question. Uh, I think the, what, what, the, what this cartoon was saying, so it is a cartoon. So the nice thing about cartoons is that you can be a bit simplistic. You can just uh, look at one um, you know, one angle, one part of the problem. And here I'm basically saying, well, we in the data science for good community tend to be a bit complacent. We tend to have this uh, simple vision of the world where we say you know, all that we or policymakers and, um, and governments and economic elites and political elites need are better data. And if only we or they well-intended kind of like, you know, Bismarckian uh, leaders had better data, then surely we would make better decisions. And I think what this cartoon is saying that, well, not really. Uh, if you look at the list of, you know, countries around the world, just as an example, uh, and you ask yourself, why are there so much gender inequality? Uh, why, why is there so much corruption? Uh, it's, it's, it's not, it's, you cannot make a very convincing case that it's because these governments and political leaders don't have uh, the data. But it doesn't mean um, it, it's just mostly or more often because they don't have an interest uh, because they are well, you know, they, uh, you know, it's, it, they're fine. They're doing well. They don't want things to change. Um, and so I was a bit frustrated indeed by this. Uh, and I've been a bit frustrated by this, um, yeah, this, this narrative. Uh, of the of the data revolution, and now the question is: Okay, so what do we do? Uh, how can data matter more? Mm -hmm. How can measurement matter? How can you have those feedback loops, um, which you actually have in an AI system? Like an AI system is able to learn from from feedback, so from from measurements, and it's able to do that very well. Like driverless cars were very bad. 10 years ago, most people uh, thought that it would never you know, work. Google Translate was very bad 10 years ago, and now it's gotten better because it's actually, these systems are able to learn from data. So you do have the feedback happening. And the big question for me is how as societies can we actually learn and adapt and change our behaviors and, 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 and policies, but also individual behaviors and collective behaviors on, on the basis of data. And so you get to things like, I mean, it, it's, it's quite close to evidence-based policymaking, but I think it's, it's broader and deeper than that. Mm -hmm. um, 
And and the key, the key for me is to to change incentives, to change, um, to educate like people, but all of us in having a sort of a, a data culture. In um, in being interested in the in the impacts uh, of our actions, as as the data tell us that mm-hmm. that they that they impact um, they impact the world, and so there's also a lot of psychological work that has mm-hmm. to be done so that we look at the data, we think, okay, what is driving this? What is the data telling us? And and how can I uh, how can I adjust uh, accordingly? But and ultimately, we can talk more about it. I think it's it's very very political. It's about power structure. It's about power dynamics. It's about who has access and who is controlling the, this new resource of the century, mm-hmm. which is data. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you also in the same paper you talk about uh, how uh, with the power of big data we can replace the way we measure a lot of these uh, geoeconomic uh, uh, indicators for instance uh, you have these three tiers and like um, you talk about like first one um, for instance uh, first tier would be something like I imagine like I don't know population or um, uh, poverty and things like that that are very well defined and are usually already measured uh, but they're measured through surveys and other things like that, whereas they can now be measured through um, certain um, like behaviors online or certain uh, sensors in in the real world and things like that. Uh, there's also there's also two more tiers, and um, tier two is indicators that are conceptually clear, but uh, and have an international established methodology and standards available, but but data is not regularly produced by countries. And tier three is no internationally established methodology or standards are yet available for this indicator. So like AI will actually, and data, big data will allow us to collect information. For instance, I don't think there's an economic indicator. I think you put this in the paper as well, that an economic indicator that talks about uh, interconnectedness of society in a certain region. But at the same time, with the power of... um, uh, data, we're, we would be able to measure that, how interconnected a society is in region A versus in region B, and then, you know, how is that impacting other indicators and how can we improve that? So it's very interesting how data can help uh, modify how we measure these things, probably increase the frequency, accuracy of measuring these things, and also increase the scope of the different indicators uh, that tell us about the how healthy a certain population is. Yeah. Um, yes, and yeah, that, that's also like quite fascinating. So, what what you're referring to are the so-called uh, so the, the sustainable development goals uh, indicators. So those are those seventeen goals that uh, so 193 governments, or we we tend to call them countries, but they are governments. So agreed to in 2015, and so. Mm-hmm. And this is in the framework of the, the what's called the 2030 um, Sustainable Development Agenda. And so in the 17 goals, you have uh, things like gender equality, poverty, uh, like urban development, etc. So a whole like peace, security, so a whole range of, of global goals. And there are sub-indicators. And those sub-indicators are 
indeed uh, grouped into those three categories of the ones that you can we know how to measure well, the ones that we sort of know how to. So they're called like SDG tier one, SDG tier two, SDG tier three. And indeed, uh, as you mentioned, I think um, there is the, the I think big data uh, AI approaches are relevant to all three kinds of indicators. Uh, so, so for example, we could measure poverty, which is an SDG one indicator. Uh, we know how to measure poverty. We've done it for you know many decades, uh, but it could improve the frequency, etc. Um, mm-hmm. And so, it's it's still relevant for SDG SDG one. For SDG three, in, indeed, I think this is where you have the the most uh, um, like experimentation, innovation, and I think scope for impact of big data and AI. Uh, so, things like social cohesion. Um, social capital and the different forms of social capital, uh, which are referred to as like bonding and bridging social capital, trust uh, between between governments and and between and between people and and governments. So those are things that are typically not very well measured and they're hard to measure because they're very yeah, psychological, cultural, behavioral, and in these data. So you can think of political records, like how many, how many, how people call each other, which groups call each other, uh, how people talk about each other on Facebook, uh, for example. Uh, so political polarization. Uh, so uh, if people say on Facebook, "Oh, I was, uh, uh, I had to give a bribe to a police officer," and zo- those are some SD- SDG 16 in particular. And so there is clearly here a big role for those kinds of innovation. Um, I will just say that this is really hard work. So we're trying to do, we've done some pilots in countries like Botswana. We're doing sentiment analysis currently in places like, like Equatorial Guinea, uh, like Togo, like Lebanon, Jordan. Um, but this is very, we're still in the infancy, I think, of those approaches. But but it's it's a gradual progress like process, and I think we'll we'll get there at some point. So it's going to help measure. But that only gets to one piece of the puzzle, which is using data to better measure human processes. And so it, it, it sort of you know gets us back to the yeah. initial discussion. Okay, okay. If you have all these great measures, how is it going to change anything? Mm-hmm. Um, and and here and then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll stop I'll stop there here for now. Here, I think it, we get to the difference uh, which between the different two main roles of data, which is one, data as a lens or lenses on the world. So you can see the world through data uh, in very imperfect ways. So you, you can think of the, 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 the plateau, like cave analogy that you know, data is a, is a reflection of the world. And sometimes it's a poor reflection, but it's sort of like, you know, almost the best that we, that in, that we get. So we we see yeah. the world through data, uh, data as lens, as a lens, or as lenses. And then there is data as as a lever, as a lever for change. Like how can we latch on, use data and these indicators to actually have uh, an impact, to actually change policies, to change um, regulations, to change our be our behaviors. Um, and part of the answer is in better measurement, yes. but not only. Okay. So how what what can we do to uh, this lever part? Like I understand what you're saying. I just want to like get to get the get the 
to the meaty part like what what how do we use data as a lever like i've only i only know about okay use data as a lens even like in a business sense or in a government sense okay get some information give some insights and then the business decision makers make the decisions but how can they actually use data as a lever what do you have any like i don't know examples of that um so let, let's say like yeah conceptually i think there are there are different ways uh, but also like concretely i mean there are very simple ways in which um data is, is and has been used as a lever uh, i mean right now with covid yeah. for example you can see that some decisions in uh, uh you know i would just take like like france as an example and i'm not saying it's, you know it's the mm -hmm. best example but just as an example well there were data that showed that it was the first wave there were models that showed that uh, you know so so many people were going to die in the absence of some measures uh, there were mobility models etc that were so used uh, using set cell phone data like in, including cell phone data from orange for instance and the government said okay if we don't uh, do a lockdown a very strict lockdown then it's going to be uh, a public health and economic and social disaster so we're going to lock down the country for about two months so that's a very clear example where data is used as a as a lever uh, and and there are many many other such example so that's really like the entail i would say of of the measurement uh like theory of change or causal change you measure some things and you say on the basis of that i'm going to make that decision mm -hmm. um what is interesting here is what are the requirements for this to happen so you need people who trust data you need people who trust you know science you need people mm -hmm. who trust the government um in france and other countries a lot of people just uh, uh, agreed uh, to to be locked down, and they were. It wasn't by by coercion for the most part. It was just because there was this you know, this be shared belief that indeed it was the best thing to do, and so people had some good level of trust. Um, and so you you need those ingredients to actually for data to be used as um, as a lever. I think, and also a very interesting part about data um, is that. It's also sort of like a language, uh, and it's also a, a, a culture. For instance, for instance, like Andreas Andreas Weigand, who used to work at Amazon and who's a like you know, pretty famous data scientist, referred to big data as a mindset, uh, the mindset to turn mess into meaning. And and I think that when we talk about data culture or data literacy, um, it's clearly like one of those ingredients but i think it also points to to the fact that you can you can actually bring people together to talk about certain issues using data as a sort of a almost as an excuse so you can do capacity building workshops you can do community engagement workshops and people uh, you, you where you bring the private sector you bring the official statistics uh, office you bring NGOs, you bring you bring startups, you bring civil society, you bring civil society organizations, and people actually talk, mm -hmm. and you have this exchange of idea. You create trust, you create um, yeah, like a shared understanding, and so and I think it matters. I mm -hmm. think then it actually it actually helps create uh, or trigger partnerships, collaborations, and and this is where I think data it, like also is also important. But it's not the measurement channel. Like it, it, it changes 
behaviors, dynamics. It creates uh, like trust. I, I use the word trust a lot, but it creates trust between these ecosystems, uh, which tend to be quite, um, yeah, like quite uh, fragmented. I'll just give like one example, like one quick example, also like from France. So there was um, um, a, a commission uh, about uh, climate change that was put together where some people were like citizens were almost like randomly selected to, to come up with uh, 100 plus, 150 plus measures about climate change. And what was very interesting is that at the beginning, people were very polarized as, as, as our, our, as our, as are our societies. But when they started talking on the basis of facts, when they started exchanging uh, ideas, perspectives, then you can get to, like, this is where a consensus, like, it comes to, to emerge. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we I see, really see a big role for data and facts uh, to actually create those kinds of, 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 uh, of consensus of compromises uh, in, in, in very polarized uh, societies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, very, very interesting. I wanted to ask you, have you seen The Social Dilemma on Netflix? No, I mean, I've seen, I've seen it in the sense that, I, that I've seen it in my uh, next Netflix uh, uh, like thread or recommendation, yeah. but no, I haven't. I haven't, I have, I haven't either, but I, I'm, it's on my list and I've heard a lot of things. And uh, in... In the in light of that, uh, you know, movie coming out and raising this awareness of this uh, issue, I also wanted to ask you how um, this is actually was I saw in one of your I think uh, course that you were presenting. Um, how can personal data be tapped into in ethical and safe ways? Right? We talk about using uh, data to uh, model these uh, economic indicators to come up with consensus and. And uh, or or come up with consensus on policies on how to use data and things like that, but a lot of it will require um, will be enhanced by the analysis or by the access to certain elements of personal data. How do we walk the line of uh, using that to empower decision making and using data as a as a lens and as a lever, but at the same time not um, overstepping the boundary and um, allowing unethical things to happen because of this. What are your thoughts on, on that? Um, I mean, first of all, you, you, you said lever and I would say lever. So maybe, you, you know, we talked about learning. So maybe I just learned that. that <laughs> I'm not sure myself. I, I think it might <laughs> depend on the country. <laughs> okay. I'm well, happy so to go with either. <laughs> but that is pronounced lever. But, you know, I, I, yeah, at any rate. Um, so, yeah, so that's also a very big yeah, very, very, very big question, and there have been, uh, and there are, you know, attempts and uh, and uh, some, uh, yeah, some, 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 some directions. Um, I, I just want to take like twenty seconds to just provide like one more argument for the for, actually for this lever arg like argument. Because, yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I think it's very important, and I'm still trying to think about, you know, what it means, what it implies, what it requires to actually use it as a, as a lever. Uh, to, for, for change. And I think one way is uh, really along the lines of the, this Commission on Climate Change. If you, as we want to do in, uh, in these projects about gender-based violence in, in, uh, in Mexico, Colombia, and Brazil, if you organize focus groups or discussion groups with women, but also men, uh, about, about these projects, so you try to you know, take their perspective, etc., 
Um, I think that can have an effect uh, like above and beyond the the effect of uh, the model or whatever, you know, the predictive model or the insights that we're going to glean and yield from, from the data. Uh, so I think it's a bit like maybe like rehashing what I said about, you know, bringing different perspectives. Like concretely, I think for some of those women, it might be the first time that they actually get to talk about, you know, these experiences. And so as a consequence, perhaps later they will be more they will be more inclined to report cases of domestic violence. So it's also, there's also, I think, an empowerment. Uh, there's also like a psychological uh, like argument uh, that I think is, uh, is, is quite important when we think about how data uh, can really matter, can really make a difference. And ultimately, and I will stop there and then go back to your question, mm-hmm. ultimately, it's really, what is fascinating and promising is that it's, it's really down to us as individuals. Uh, you, it is our choice to stand up in the subway to give our to give up our seat or not. It is up to us to do all those things that collectively uh, make up the world the, the 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 way it is. It is up to us to decide if we buy everything on Amazon or just what we really need. And if we don't need, if we have, if we can go next door uh, to buy something, then, then I think it's it's better if we if we do that. Now to uh, go back to your question about tapping into uh, so what's called, you know, yeah, PII, personally identifiable information. Uh, so, or like personal data, private data. So there's a, you know, different ways it's called and actually a, a range. Um, so in, in short, the way the, the way it's done is, is typically by not sharing, not opening the data itself. So mm-hmm. let's call it like the raw data. I mean, some say that it's an oxymoron, like you know, mm-hmm. raw data, but not opening the raw data uh, because it's just too sensitive. And there are you know, commercial considerations, ethical privacy considerations, um, but instead allowing some, uh, some computation, some analysis to be performed on the, on the data uh, through a question and answer or through question and answer mechanisms. So what we would be interested in, for example, is uh, so looking at uh, mobility data, for instance, from cell phone activity. So those little yeah. you know, sensors and trackers that we that we all carry uh, on us. Um, you would want to know things like uh, what is the current population density or distribution in a given area? Is it changing by more than ten percent from some baseline? Uh, do you see massive uh, movement of population? Um, uh, do you see, for example, in the case of COVID recently, it was a study that showed that rich areas in the U.S., in urban, um, in urban regions, were able to reduce their mobility by more than 50% mm. three days before poor areas. Mm. Okay? And so... That's here. It's data as a lens. It shows something about human ecosystems. We we see something happening, um, and then it can also be data as a lever because then you can say, well, why is that? Well, it is because poor areas or poor people usually don't have a choice. They have to go to work. A lot of them are essential workers, uh, etc. And so then you can you can take actions on the basis of that, mm-hmm. um, but. To do that, you don't need to have access to the raw data. 
So you can just set some uh, some feature. You can just uh, partner with the, the telecom companies and say, um, uh, can you tell us if, when, where um, mobility, dec- as measured by some algorithms, some according to some metric, where mobility has um, has declined by let's say let's say fifty percent, mm-hmm. and we can talk about you know the technology or um, so. It, yeah, it, so these data are pseudonymized, so meaning that your phone number is mm-hmm. uh, changed. I mean, is replaced by a string uh, of uh, yeah of you know numbers and letters. Um, so it's not anonymization. It's no longer called anonymization. It's called pseudonymization because it's replaced by a pseudonym, and then it's also aggregated. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so the big question is uh, how. Can it be re-identified uh, or not, and at what level? And so there's a whole strand of research uh, on that. But that, that's the gist of it, this question and answer mechanism based on pseudonymized, aggregated data. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Pseudonymized. That's very insightful. Thank you. Um, uh, we're, this has been so fast. We're slowly getting to... To the end, actually, and uh, I still have so many questions, but I'll ask this uh, this one um, that's that I think will be interesting. What are your thoughts on how data can help with disaster resilience? We are entering a world where there's more and more, you know, changes happening fast, including like fires in Australia, um, this COVID situation, and you know, there's going to be other disasters that that strike. Uh, what are your thoughts on data and disaster resilience? Um, yes, another fascinating topic. Actually, um, we we worked a few years ago, uh, so as Data Alliance, on a, a series of case studies and a report on using big data for uh, like for climate resilience with uh, mm-hmm. with DFID, so the the UK's development agency. Uh, and it gets to things like about you know complex systems, and I mean it, it's it's super interesting. I think I see like two main ways. Um, one is more, uh, one is more short term, and in and in a sense, you could call this like more humanitarian uh, response or emergency um, response, where uh, you can try and uh, you know predict the spread uh, of uh, a fire or the spread of an epidemic uh, or uh, get sort of like digital smoke signals for. Uh, for conflict, or um, yeah, for crime, for hunger, and then you and then you 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 react, you know, as as fast as possible. Um, and it's been used in the case of earthquakes, uh, in the case of uh, uh, of uh, tsunamis. Uh, there, you have a lot of technical and scientific challenges about representativity, about sample bias. Uh, that you really need to be aware of. Just a super quick example. If you have an earthquake um, and if you rely on cell phone activity to know where people are to send trucks, um, then um, it's actually likely that if you send it to where you have more signals, like from SIM cards, then you're going to send it to the wrong regions because it's actually where people, because it's actually where people were the least affected. Oh. In the regions that were the most affected, like towers are down, they're under uh. rubbles, they are unconscious. 
uh. unconscious. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so we, this is where like statistics, basic statistics uh, and knowledge expertise like come in. People should be able to tell the respondents who would look at a map of hotspots, you know, no, like you're getting a wrong signal. You're going to make a very a wrong decision because you don't understand uh, like basic statistics. Um, so that's one, that's one, uh, one way. Another, yeah. I think is, let's say, yeah, more in the, in the development or societal development sphere, which is, uh, which is more upstream and maybe like more long-term and more challenging, which is how can data help us uh, change, adjust our behaviors or collective decisions in ways that make those, uh, those events less frequent, um, less uh, violent, um, and and to di- to different degrees. Uh, so it can be about uh, using you know less electricity. It can be about u- using our cars less. It can be about being less violent, uh, less greedy. Uh, I think a lot of that, a lot yeah. of what we see around the world, comes down to this very simple like human feeling. <laughs> Of uh, or or desire of, of greed, like people tend to, or seem to be wanting to be, have more money, more power, uh, more social and 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 other forms of of capital. Um, and one of my hopes is that with uh, by learning from data, by being more aware uh, yeah. of the consequences of our actions, then we could uh, change our behaviors and societies in ways that would make them more resilient. Fantastic. I, I love it. Ties in uh, data and consciousness, how how data can help us on the path to becoming more conscious as a species. And uh, some people argue that that shift in consciousness is absolutely necessary in order for our planet and our uh, species to survive. Yeah. Just um, one one quick thing, very quick thing here. Is that sure, sure. I think, like really, I've said at the beginning, but I think it's really a, a, maybe a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for us, including as data scientists, to really make a contribution, uh, uh-huh. to really like change, like try and change or improve the world, um, and not in superficial ways. And sometimes there are there are trade-offs. It's very, it's very political. Um, I would, I, there is, I think sometimes I'm quite frustrated by the data for good movement because it's, it, it doesn't really get to the deeper power dynamics and structures that underpin and, and, and preside over some of the outcomes. And so one example of that would be if you, there are projects right now that are partnering with very big banks. And I'm not going to name them because it's not about naming and shaming, but very big banks and um, that have a pretty, pretty, I think, shady record when it comes to, uh, I mean, you know, doing illegal things, uh, um, you know, ripping off clients with a very high fees, etc. Uh, whose CEOs make thirty plus million dollars a year, uh, and so they partner with those with those big banks, um, and uh, they say, well, you know, it's going to help. Uh, because we have credit card transactions and we're going to we're going to understand the the effect of covid etc um but but it doesn't really get to the root causes um and it doesn't really get to it, it's yeah it's not it's not very uh, it's a bit complacent 
I think is my is my is my point. Uh, and there is always a fine line. Uh, you have to work, you know, in the existing world. Uh, but I think yeah. we have to be a bit bolder. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's a very interesting perspective, and uh, I agree. We need to um, be conscious of how we approach these things. Hmm. Um, okay, Emmanuel. Um, a question, a wrapping up question for you. So, from all your experience uh, with uh, econ- economics, with data, with the UN, with the Data Pop Alliance, from the things you've seen, what do you think the future of data science holds in the next three to five years? What is coming our way in this in this space? Um. I mean, I would say some 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 big trends and then some big hopes. Okay. So big big trends. Um, I mean, increasingly, um, yeah. So like, uh, I think, um, yeah, I think like fintech, like of course, um, is is uh, is growing like very fast, and I think COVID will accelerate uh, a lot of those trends. Um, likewise, I think we see. Um, we see a, a big move uh, uh, towards um, uh, digital identities, and with all the the sort of uh, you know the, the 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 risks and benefits of many people having actually digital identities. And so, I think for data scientists, it means being it will mean being uh, aware of uh, of the of the of the surroundings of these mega technological trends, and not focus only on uh, on on crunching. Uh, on crunching data, um, and so uh, increasingly they they will have, and we will have to think about architectures, uh, distributed architectures uh, to store and analyze data, and connections between different uh, different industries, uh, especially around um, especially yeah, especially around uh, around personal uh, data and uh, and digital digital IDs and digital transfers. Mm-hmm. In terms of hopes, uh, my mm-hmm. hope is that more and more uh, young people get in the field of data science, uh, but I would say with a purpose. Uh, and I hope that, for instance, if uh, a very smart young uh, woman or student or man uh, wants to get into data science, that maybe it would be controversial to say that, but maybe they won't choose to work for the Amazon data science team as much, you know, as cool as it is um, as much money as they will make uh, there is of course it's very enticing to be yeah. uh, uh, to be you know asking if you want to join the amazon data science team just as an example yeah. uh, and i th- and i hope that we need we need people with you know good brains uh, good hearts <laughs> good minds um, there is this quote that says um, you know science without conscience is the source perdition uh-huh. Uh, and so I think data source science. Source perdition? Without, what does that mean? The soul's perdition. Oh, well, souls. And what is perdition? I'm not yeah. familiar with that word. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the, the loss of the soul. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Thank you. And so Science. I think you could, you could, yes, you could apply, of course, the same or just add data in front of it that data <laughs> science, you without conscience, is the soul's perdition or the loss of the soul. 
And, and so my hope is that there will be more of a drive towards uh, projects, uh, uh, you know, jobs, activities, re- leveraging the very, very massive, impressive power of data science for uh, higher purposes than maximizing the, the, the revenue of, uh, of any given uh, corporation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lovely. I love that, data science of a purpose. Um, Emmanuel, that's, that's a lovely note to wrap up on and a, a good parting for, thought for, uh, for me to think about, for our listeners to think about as well. Um, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a huge pleasure and a great discussion. And at the same time, before we... Yeah, but before we go, I'd like to ask you, what's, uh, uh, what's the places uh, our listeners can get in touch, contact you, or maybe get take part in some of the great work that you're doing, or at least follow the progress? Um, well, in, t- in two ways. So one is just uh, the you know, typical online uh, like media that we have. So the website is uh, datapopalliance, uh, datapopalliance.org. Uh, yeah. in one word and then of course uh, like you know Facebook Twitter uh, etc uh, on on also on LinkedIn uh, so mm-hmm. you know, I'm under my name in Emmanuel Le Touze. Uh and then uh, and then of course people can also send me uh, an email uh, if mm-hmm. they want and so I'm happy to give my email which is uh, uh, my first initial and then last name so E L E T-O-U-Z-E, as in Zebra Echo, E-L-E-T-O-U-Z-E, Eletouz, at uh, datapopalliance.org. And I'll be uh, yeah, happy to get any questions, comments, suggestions, uh, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll make sure to, to answer. Awesome. Thank you very much. And uh, final question, what's a book you would like to recommend? Um, I mean, the book have been, uh, that I just actually bought uh, recently uh, is... Um, yeah, I think we got disconnected, so I started again. So, a book that I that I uh, that I, that I bought recently is uh, called "The Technology Trap," um, uh-huh. and so and then the subtitle is is quite enticing. It's "Capital, Labor, and Power in the Age of Automation," and uh-huh. so by uh, Carl Benedict Frey uh, from Oxford. And so, yeah, that's what I've been uh, uh, starting. So I'm I'm, I'm currently reading this um, and. Other than that, my uh, the book that I think was the most formative and important for me was The Great Transformation by Carl sure. Polanyi, uh, which was written in the 1940s. Uh, oh, wow. And it's a, it's a classic in political economy, development economics, The Great Transformation. And I, th- I think, of course, it resonates uh, today uh, because mm-hmm. I think we are also in the, in the, in the midst of a of a great transformation uh, because of technology, um, COVID, and many, many other um, mega trends. Awesome, fantastic. So Technology Trap by Carl Benedict Frey and The Great Transformation by Carl Eponi. Polony. P-O-L-A-N-Y-E, yeah. Awesome. And both so are what, called what, Carl, but yeah. <laughs> it's just, what it's about, just... uh, why did you pick up Technology Trap? What did you? What are you hoping to get out of this? What are you aiming to get out of this book? So I, I really like history. Uh, I studied a bit history, and and what really uh, like interested me in this book, reading uh, the reviews and that, and the and, and some of the, the executive summary is that 
it looks at the industrial revolution uh -huh. also and it looks it tries to to glean lessons uh from the industrial revolution about the role of technology uh, and and the very disruptive effect of technology uh -huh. Uh -huh. um and and so and in, in in a nutshell a lot of people lost their their livelihoods their jobs uh during the industrial revolution but for it, it wasn't for five or ten years like you know we think that this process of adjustment is quick and yes yeah, some people lose 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 their jobs but then then we're all better off but it yeah. took generations um and so it was very very disruptive and um, and so today with automation with the rise of uh, ai etc uh people are and and concerns for privacy there is a big pushback against mm -hmm. technology um, and we can't just brush it off saying, oh, we, you know, we'll adjust, we've gone through that. Mm -hmm. um, I think if we push too hard and if we don't do this the right way, I think there could be very big backlashes. Um, you know, democracy, I think, is on the line. Uh, we see political upheavals all around. Um, and so I think it's a bit of a, I'm trying, what I'm expecting to get is some pointers mm -hmm. uh, about some lessons of the, of the past. Uh, to help me think about and navigate uh, these these uh, yeah current and looming um, yeah trade offs uh, and, and and try to find the uh, yeah the right uh, the right pathways. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really very very cool. I like the conscious approach to picking a book. <laughs> that's a great example of that. Um, awesome. Well, there you go. Technology trap. If anybody's interested. Um, on that note, Emmanuel, thanks so much for joining us today. It was a huge pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, likewise. And so, yeah, good luck. And uh, yeah, all of us uh, be well and safe. And I would say be kind. So there you have it, everybody. I hope you enjoyed uh, this conversation with Emmanuel. Uh, as much as I did and got lots of valuable insights and takeaways. Um, there was so many interesting topics that Emmanuel could comment on from his experience, from um, the work that he's done, whether uh, with the United Nations or through Data Pop Alliance or through other projects he's been involved with. It's exciting to see people pioneering or uh, taking charge in spaces of global world problems and using data to address them. My personal favorite part was about measuring versus impacting. That, that was a really cool um, way of describing how data science can be used, uh, whether it can be used just as a lens to view the world, but really what's the, what's the big purpose of viewing the world through a lens, the lens of data, you're not going to do anything about it, nothing's going to change. So. That second part, using data as a lever for change, uh, is an important thing to always keep in mind. And I also appreciated quite a lot that uh, what Emmanuel said at the end, that we need to uh, be using data consciously and that data science, or uh, the saying goes, science without conscious uh, is uh, the soul's perdition, but also you could add data and me and make it data science without conscious is the soul's perdition or the loss of the soul. So definitely something to think about. And on that note, as usual, you can get the show notes for this episode at superdatascience.com slash 413. That's superdatascience.com slash 413. 
Uh, you will find the transcript for this episode, any materials we mentioned on the show, any links. And Emmanuel actually promised to send us a cartoon that he drew up to put up there. So you can check it out there as well. Um, and if uh, you enjoyed this episode, then make sure to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast to help spread the word about this podcast to the world. And let's make it a better place together. On that note, I'll see you next time. And until then, happy analyzing. <laughs>